My name is Anna Oberi. I'm Johanna Tilkanen. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Well, hello and welcome back to The Climate Briefing, episode six. Cannot believe it. It feels like just weeks ago that we were recording episode one, but it's very exciting. They've not taken us off the airwaves just yet. And I'm joined this week by my colleague, Johanna. How are you doing, Johanna? Hello, Ben. I'm good. Thank you. Tell us a bit about what we're talking about this week. Yes. So today we'll be talking about industrial decarbonisation, which means that essentially it's about how to minimise emissions from making the products and materials we consume. Industry accounts for over 20% of global carbon emissions. So decarbonizing industry is really important from the perspective of achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement. We were exploring this topic in our latest COP26 diplomatic briefing event, including the strategies that are deployed to mitigate emissions from industry and covering policy, finance and technical solutions. So today we will be further exploring this topic in our interviews with the two speakers from the event. So Ben, who did you speak to? So I spoke to Steve Evans, Professor Steve Evans, I should say, from the Institute for Manufacturing at the University of Cambridge. And he gave us just a big overview on the science behind industry decarbonisation and the economics as well behind it, how we can incentivize industry to go through this process of decarbonisation. And it was a really interesting interview because it's one of those things where actually the solutions exist, right? We're not lacking in ideas about how we do this. It's just how to create the political and social will to do it. So it was very interesting. But who did you speak to, Johanna? So I spoke to Catherine Barber, who's the Deputy Director of Industrial Decarbonisation Funds at BASE. And our discussion was focused more on what the UK is doing in terms of accelerating industrial decarbonisation. We spoke a bit about the role of policy and finance as well. And we also spoke about what the UK is doing on the industrial decarbonisation in the context of preparing for COP26 next year, and also in the context of COVID-19 recovery plans. Well, sounds fascinating. Let's have a listen. So now I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Steve Evans. Steve is the Director of Research in Industrial Sustainability with the Institute for Manufacturing at the University of Cambridge, which is a fantastically long job title. Sounds fascinating. His research seeks a deep understanding of how industry develops solutions that can move us towards a sustainable future. And Steve recently spoke at our climate briefing, diplomatic briefing event on industry decarbonisation. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's one of many long job titles for people like me. Uh, for, for example, and I just want to point out, for the, you know, for the benefit of people uh, listening, I did used to work in industry and I founded a number of clean tech startup companies. So part of the answer is whatever I'm going to be talking about, it's not about what's happening in the labs. It's about what's happening in the real world. And I would just like to encourage us to go in that direction. This is about making real change. And that sounds like a good place to start. So today's topic, as I mentioned, industry decarbonisation, quite a techie term in some ways. Could you just give us sort of your definition of what you think that means and why this is so important to the wider climate agenda? 
So if we ignore natural processes like deforestation, there are three main sources of carbon emitted through human activity. One set comes through buildings, another set comes through moving stuff around, transport, road mostly. And the other set comes from the making of all of the stuff, including the making of the car and the making of the windows that went into that building. They each take about one third of the total amount of CO2 that we emit. So industrial decarbonization is taking the third of carbon that humans emit through the various factories of the world, the industrial system, and getting that down to zero. Why is it important? Because we're in charge of that system, we can actually control it. If we can't get that down to zero, we are going to struggle to get the amount of CO2 and equivalents that we put into the atmosphere down to a level which is going to stop dangerous global warming. Absolutely. And so to reach this zero emissions from this particular sector of our activities, what sort of measures do you think industry should be undertaking? What does that actually sort of tangibly involve? Our research is reasonably clear on this, and I think it's very simple to think about it as four pieces of a jigsaw. You need all four of them. The very first piece of that jigsaw should be making sure that you emit the smallest amount of carbon in order to deliver whatever it is you already produce today with the machines you already have today. So that's efficiency. And if every factory in the world was as efficient as the best factory in its own country, in its sector, so the best brewery in Britain, all of the other breweries went up to their current today level, we would already have got two years down our journey of moving towards net zero. Now, two years isn't much, but it's a start. Mm. And it means that we don't have to invest in new technology. That's just sharing of knowledge. So that's step one. Step two is changing the way in which we generate value in relation to our customers. So we talk about new business models. If we stopped selling cars, but instead made cars available and rented them per mile traveled, the car companies would have to put the fuel in and the insurance in, etc. And that would allow them to design cars that would easily achieve 100 miles per gallon and to do that at a profitable level. Mm. So 100 mile per gallon cars that are profitable, require a change in the value relationship between the supplying companies, the manufacturers, and their customers. So business model innovation is what we call that. The third set is technology. And I'm encouraging us to think of it as the third wave. Of course, there are some technologies that can we can use now, but significant change, significant technological uplift in the way that we make products and use less carbon to make those products we need to be able to put money into our pockets to be able to buy those technologies. And the first two waves of efficiency and business model innovation help pay for that third wave of technology. Even if you do all of those three things, you won't reach net zero. So I'm afraid that somewhere towards the end of this four-part journey, getting closer to our 2050 target, we will have to see some disruption in the shapes of industry. So who makes what where and how that all adds up to a system that can work at zero carbon. So significant change is out there, is necessary, but isn't necessary for the next 15 years at least. So let's get on the journey. Bit of a follow-up question there on 
the impact that globalization has had on this picture because from an economic standpoint as i understand it the uh, global supply chains and manufacturing different parts of different products in different places and shipping them between the two is economically has turned out to be the most efficient way of producing products even like cars or mobile phones or whatever you want to say i just wondered how does that model play into this is that something that's going to have to be disrupted Only about 2% of greenhouse gases come from shipping and the same from aviation. And only part of that in aviation is flying bits around for manufacturing. Mm. So it's a relatively small number compared to the dominant part of manufacturing. I was working for a sports bra manufacturer that worked out that if it shipped a semi-constructed sports bra to New Zealand, did one operation in New Zealand and shipped it back, that would cost one cent per bra. So that means that if you can save three cents, it's worth doing. Mm. And the result of that is very complex, very long supply chains searching for cents. Now, we all benefit from the fact that the products in our shops are cheaper, but the disbenefit of that is that we have an incredibly unconnected industrial system. Mm. So we have suppliers who are far away. And our ability to influence their decarbonization strategies is influenced, I'm going to suggest, by distance. So an unwitting effect of globalization is that we're not as easily in control of the carbon footprint of the products that we make. And that's something clearly that we have to change. So as we see more and more localization strategies onshoring, One of the potential benefits of that is greater control and lower carbon per product. And going back to the the measures that you set out just then, the efficiency, new business models, technological innovation and disruption, I just wondered whether you've got a sense of how feasible these strategies are from an economic perspective. Is, Is there necessarily a tension between taking all of these measures that will cause great change and making money? Or can the two go hand in hand? So I would like to offer two examples, mm-hmm. one of a business model innovation, one of an efficiency. The Toyota factory in Derby started down a journey of focusing its wonderful ability to deliver continuous improvement and took it away from labor and started to use it on things like energy, continuous improvement. It's now been on that journey for a long time. And at the last point of measurement that I have data for, after 14 years, they had delivered 8% per annum energy reduction at near zero cost. So all of that savings is savings. And the first thing we have to do is learn how to be as good as Toyota. I would note that when Toyota started on that journey, they were one of, if not the, world's most admired manufacturer. So Mm. if the best one can get, and here's the big boom number, they have reduced the amount of energy to make one car by 77%. They can make four cars for the same energy it used to take to make one at zero investment. Wow. And that's what puts money in your pocket for the days when you do have to start spending. That day will come. Mm. But what I'm encouraging people to do is make savings first, bank them, and then spend them. In terms of business model innovation, let's take one of the hardest problems in the world, fast fashion. A fast fashionista in the UK typically spends 50 to 60 pounds a week on clothing. 
typically they have one item there, the marquee item that they will wear one time only, literally one time in their whole life. They will put it on once and that will be it. Now, you might say this is fine until you realize on average, they have about three and a half thousand pounds of credit card debt. What is the answer to this? Frontal lobotomy, I hear the audience shouting, right? And I'm going to say that's probably not acceptable. (laughs) But what if we allowed them, instead of spending 50 to 60 pounds a week, to spend 25 pounds a week on a card that allowed them to have 20 items at home in their wardrobe, but they could bring those items back to the high street and change them as often as they liked? Now, They have two wardrobes, a small one at home and an enormous one in the high street. So they still have the ability to wear things once. It's half the price. The really interesting question then becomes, what does it do for the profit of the retailers and what does it do environmentally? Well, it halves the environmental impact because you halve the amount of cotton grown or half the amount of polyester produced to make those clothes. And it doubles profit. So it is more profitable to give fast fashionistas more clothes as long as you stay in control of them. And the the secret here is that the shops, the retailers understand fiber. They know how to keep that fiber making money. Once you give it to somebody who wears it once, that is the most stupid waste of a nice material possible. It's sitting in a wardrobe, not delivering value to anyone. It's moronic. So... Both of those things, efficiency and business model innovation, put money in your pocket for the dark day when you're going to have to spend it on some pretty tough technology options. I mean, you paint such a positive picture, it's hard to know why people wouldn't just go ahead and do this. But what do you think are the main sort of obstacles to these things being achieved? Why isn't change happening faster? I'm a researcher, right? That is my number one question. If these things are so obvious... Why aren't they everywhere? And and actually, we study that very, very carefully. And I'm going to cut to the chase. The hardest thing to change in life is mental models. The way in which you think the world works. If I believe the world works a certain way, I will unwittingly act to reinforce that. And it may not actually be a law of economics or a law of nature. So the mental model that's getting in the way here is that we believe that sustainability is expensive. And if you believe it is expensive, I guarantee you will find expensive answers and you will prove yourself right. (laughs) If, and what I would encourage people to do is not to reach for their wallets when they're solving these problems, but to reach for the brain power in themselves and in their staff and in their suppliers and in their customers, because in that brain power, there are lots of answers that save money. Having saved that money, you've now got some for when you do start running out of ideas. Interestingly, we started a program some time ago in a factory in Vietnam that makes jeans. At the time, it took about 800 liters of water, 800, to make one pair of jeans. We didn't set a target. We just wanted to get the number down. Yeah. And it kept plateauing. And then we went away and thought about it really, really for very long periods of time, thinking, well, we may be reaching a limit. And then something happened and we found some other answer. We eventually got it down to under one litre from 800. If we had set a target of even 100 litres, we wouldn't have gone on the journey because we would have thought it impossible. And this is the beauty of continuous improvement. Something that manufacturers are really good at is applying continuous improvement to labour productivity 
And if we can apply the same thinking to energy and water and material productivity, we can get all of these gains. And we really don't know how far we could go. We don't know what the best possible performance of the industrial system is just through continuous improvement in this space. We can make some wild guesses, but we really don't know how far we can go. And I would encourage us to push in that direction. Absolutely. And to help businesses and industry push in that direction, what should be the role of government in this? Is this something that that really the private sector should just be taking and running with? Or can states be trying to incentivize this? So I, I'm going to suggest there is a quite different political mental model problem that we have to solve here. And that is that politicians, not unreasonably, whether that be professional civil servants or elected politicians believe that once a cost is internalized that they've done their job so we we consider if we can put a price on carbon if we can internalize it we have done our job and basic economics takes over from that point i'm going to suggest if that was true you wouldn't have the massive difference between the best energy and the worst energy factory in a particular sector mm. so internalizing a cost People do pay their energy bill. People do pay their water bill. People do purchase materials. And yet there is strong evidence that they are being wasteful in those three areas of performance. So I do think in politics, we cannot allow the debate to be one of internalizing and externalizing. So let's ignore that as a set of tools. What tools are still available? And I'm going to be rather simple. I would call for heroes and zeros. I think that if you go to the jeans factory, you should pull out the people who've led that program, who've got the water down to below one liter, and you should give them a blinking MBE, right? Make them famous, but then send them home and say, right, when you get back to Huddersfield, you have to teach everybody else how to get to one liter of water, how to get on that journey. Mm. We, we need to make these people heroes, but then we need to make them share their information. And I think we have the power of that within our political system. The other side of that coin is the zeros. I would have ministers and senior people dragging in business saying, hey, how are you doing on this journey? And you really don't want us to shame you in public, do you? Find some heroes and get on with it. And I think that this is cheaper and better. There is, outside of heroes and zeros, a third technique to this, which is related to business model innovation, and that is forward procurement. If the British government in 2002 said, we're going to stop buying or leasing cars and small vans until there is a 100 mile per gallon version available, and whoever has that will then win the back orders, Hmm. that number of vehicles would have been sufficient to de-risk the spreadsheets of the car companies. And we would have been the world's first country to make 100 mile per gallon cars, and we would have had them for 17 years already. Wow. 100 mile per gallon cars are easy to make. They are not easy to make profitably. So if the government can slightly nudge the equation through forward procurement, Think about it, the government saves money by not paying so much for fuel. This actually reduces government budget, but incentivizes innovation. And I think we've got to be really strong on forward procurement if we want to drive this agenda. 
I wanted to just quickly go off on a slight tangent to ask about whether geography makes a difference in this equation. Do you think that when we're thinking about the differences between developed and developing countries, whatever we think about that paradigm, do you think this is something that is easier to achieve in developed countries? Or do you think that actually there are some examples where we should be learning from others? I do a lot of work in developing countries, both for governments and for industry Mm. I don't think it's more difficult, but it is different in developing countries. I think the difficulties are slightly altered. And one of the reasons is the benefit of a developed country typically is the knowledge infrastructure. The people who have masters and PhDs and who know how to share information and the techniques to do that are typically more evolved in developing countries. And so you can use that as a platform for knowledge sharing and continuous improvement and getting on these journeys. If you go to developing economies, they are even more stuck in the trap of the mental model, believing they can't afford to become green until they hit $20,000 a year median income. So it's already built into their policy. We're not going to do anything about this except keep people quiet until we hit a certain scale of economic development. So it's even more of a challenge. It's a different type of challenge in those countries, but they're not massively different and it can be made to work in both places. A final question I suppose, which sort of relates to the current situation that we're in, obviously living through this once in a generation pandemic and the effect that that's had on the economy and industries all over the world. I just wondered whether you agree that this is a moment of opportunity, whether this is going to mark some kind of substantial shift. Is it a way that we're going to be able to change our mental models? Or do you think that in the sort of haste to recover the losses that coronavirus has drawn that that we're going to see industries doubling down on unsustainable wasteful practices so um i run something called the resilience and sustainable development research group and we advise developing country governments on the development of resilient policies so we look at disasters and disaster recovery mechanisms as as part of that Over the last two years, we've been doing some very significant analysis looking out to 2030 and the number of potentially very significant disruptive events that might occur between now and then, Mm. and uh, came to some really interesting conclusions. And the conclusions about, well, number one conclusion, it's going to be incredibly hard to recover from where we are in a very sort of v-shaped recovery get back on a pathway and then we'll continue on that pathway that's what the data tends to suggest and, and many people think that that's true what's interesting is about what happens next is actually largely determined by the mental model that is applied so if companies or nations prioritize scale as in I want the company to have a bigger turnover. I want the country to have a larger and growing GDP. Hmm. And you war game that, you end up with actions that tend to denude that particular objective. So you'll actually fail by targeting it because your natural instruments will take you away from your target. If, on the other hand, you prioritize a larger view of well-being, So for companies, that means profit rather than turnover. The more profit you have, the easier it is to be resilient and to use that profit in many ways. 
So I'm not worried about size, I'm worried about profit. In nations, I'm worried about well-being, giving people jobs, feeding people. The resulting actions actually give you a chance of retaining and even growing your turnover and your economy. So there's a counterproductive result of which mental model we seem to choose. And I wrote that report. It's a private report for a particular developing country government last year. And now I'm seeing it play out. So it gives me reasonable confidence that I'm not reacting just to the feelings and emotions of being in a most terrible situation that we're in at the moment. I do understand the emotional desire to go back. You know, we all want to go, whatever, to the pub, to the golf club, (laughs) or wherever it is you go. But going back to that doesn't mean going back to all of the old systems. Many people believe this is a significant opportunity. Personally, if you play back what I've been saying right at the start, to me, the first step has to be learn how to be as energy, water, and material efficient as possible with current technology. So that is a low-cost way of reducing total cost and reducing total imports. That is very much a resilient policy. So there is no differentiation. And if we choose not to go on that journey, not to decarbonize, not to become sustainable, we will be making resilience and recovery more difficult. So not only is it a moral imperative to continue on the path to sustainability, it's actually the right way out of this situation, in my opinion. Feels like a a good place to end. Thank you so much, Steve Evans, for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. So I'm here with Catherine Barber, who is the Deputy Director at Industrial Decarbonisation Funds at BASE the UK Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Hello, Johanna. Nice to be with you. So, first of all, could you maybe tell us a bit about your role at Bayes and what's your specialist focus on this topic? Sure. So, I'm responsible for two funds to help industry to decarbonise. Between them, they're worth over £500 million over the coming years. One is the Industrial Energy Transformation Fund and the other is the Clean Steel Fund. And I work to set those up and make them available for industry. So, I was wondering if you could explain a bit what is the UK doing to promote industry decarbonisation and if you have some examples. Sure. Well, there's a lot going on. I think everybody will be familiar with the idea of carbon pricing. That's been the backbone of UK policy on decarbonisation for industry and for the power sector for many years. We've been part of the emissions trading system in the EU. And just recently, we've published our policy and planning for setting up a UK emissions trading system from next year onwards, which is going to be even more ambitious in terms of its cap and potentially its future coverage as well. So carbon pricing is definitely there to stay. We also have several funds which provide grants for companies. We help to get innovation going, bringing forward technologies both for energy efficiency and then things like carbon capture and storage and use of hydrogen. And we're trying to get industrial clusters to decarbonise. And the government has a policy of setting up a low carbon industrial cluster in the UK by 2030 and a net zero one by 2040, which might be the world's first net zero industrial cluster. So a lot of effort goes into making that happen. 
And what would you say are maybe the specific challenges in the UK? I think there are challenges which are common both for the UK and for other countries, to be honest, which is that a lot of equipment that companies have to invest in for manufacturing and for industry can last for decades. So recently I visited a ceramics factory, for example, where they were using a kiln which was installed in 1953. So if you imagine that something installed today could easily be in use in 2050 and maybe even in the latter half of this century, they said it was a good kiln, by the way, that means that as companies make investments now, they need to think not just how to make profit in 2020, but also at a time when net zero is going to be a legal requirement where they just won't be allowed to use equipment that will be emitting. And part of government's job is to say this with great conviction, and we've now legislated for it with the Climate Change Act and the net zero edition last year, to say if you invest in things which are dirty, they will be obsolete in future. And so don't make that investment now believe in the law, believe in the fact that carbon pricing is going to rise and take some of these grants that we're offering you to to help make it more affordable to invest. And that means that right now in the 2020s, people need to be designing net zero into their planning. But that is a challenge, especially in quite difficult economic circumstances now. The things which pay back quickest in two or three years may not be the cleanest, but we really need companies to take that long-term perspective. One other thing that matters is creating markets for clean products. And we have a number of ways that we've regulated, uh, for example, clean energy light bulbs. We now are accustomed to using much cleaner light bulbs than we did in the past. So a more complicated question would be, if you look at industrial products, can we find ways to incentivize producers to come up with clean industrial products? And can we find ways to incentivize the people who are buying them to want to buy clean? So that's something that the Department for Business is looking at, is how do we generate those markets for clean industrial products? And can we, without actually spending government money on it, can we create the incentives that make this a reality? So if we talk a bit more about the role of policy in this, could you give us a bit more detail on what kind of policies you already maybe have in place and what you're maybe looking to introduce in the future to further accelerate the industrial decarbonisation? Sure. So I mentioned carbon pricing and also industrial clusters. So at the moment, the UK government is funding six different clusters at places like Teesside, the Humber, South Wales, to come up with roadmaps for how that cluster, which already exists, could decarbonise at pace. And we're providing millions of pounds of funding to the clusters and to the to the individual businesses that work in them to come up with those plans and those studies. And we will then be providing investment into actual new equipment there. So there's a fund, £170 million, which is run by UK Research and Innovation, that companies in those clusters can access now to help to decarbonise. And and that's really important because more than half of UK industrial emissions comes from those six locations. So we're really quite concentrated in where our emissions come from. And that's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity because we may be able to get uh, infrastructure going. For example, the pipes that connect factories together, that capture the carbon and then take it off for storage 
elsewhere. And it's easier to put that infrastructure in if you've got companies clustered together. So that's a big focus. And then in the recent budget, the Chancellor announced £800 million for a CCUS infrastructure fund. So, so that, that's another part of that story. And we're looking at the business models as well that will give the right financial incentives for companies and the operators and, and owners of these infrastructure networks so that we don't have to spend too much taxpayers' money in setting up infrastructure. We can, if we can make the market conditions right, then we hope that there'll be a lot of private sector participation in that too. So if we then move on to bring this discussion more to the, the UN climate negotiations and the COP26 that's now postponed until November next year. So how does industry decarbonisation come under this process and how would this topic feature at COP26? Well, we're really excited to be hosting COP26. Uh, we're sorry it's had to be postponed by a year, but we're looking forward to it being in Glasgow next November. That's now confirmed. And it's clear that in COP26, everybody is going to need to up their game and be more ambitious. And that goes for governments representing their countries. And it also goes for non-state actors as well. So, so for businesses, for researchers, for investors, um, we will be expecting everybody to come wanting to show more ambition in COP26. And we will be really focusing on action, a real action in the economy, not just promises, but people saying what they can deliver in the next five years, what can really kickstart decarbonisation in all sectors, including industry. And the UK works with several other countries who, who are champions in this area. We participate, for example, in something called Mission Innovation that brings together countries who want to accelerate research development and deployment of, of new technologies. And in the industrial sphere, we have with Mexico and Saudi Arabia led on the carbon capture and storage aspect of mission innovation. And that's one piece of work that we want to, to accelerate over the year before COP26. So there's a lot going on between governments and trying to get companies involved as well to come next year with greater ambition. So finally, of course, the current COVID-19 crisis has already had a big impact on industry and all of us. And many companies have had to completely shut down their operations during the lockdown. But as the world starts to emerge from this crisis, how do you see this crisis affecting industrial decarbonisation efforts going forward? And what do you think are the particular challenges and are there possibly any opportunities? Clearly, this is an incredibly difficult year for anybody in the private sector, including for industry and for manufacturing. And we're certainly seeing that companies are postponing some of their investment plans, projects or equipment that they might have invested in this year. They might postpone till next year, possibly beyond that. They're facing lower demand. They may be finding it harder to operate because of all of the social distancing needs. And, and there's uncertainty about the future prospects as well. So clearly, this is a, a very tough time. At the same time, I think there are opportunities. Our Prime Minister has spoken about building back better, and the government is committed to a clean and resilient recovery, which I think is an opportunity because the economy will not look the same next year or in the years after. This is a moment where we have to make some big choices about what we want our economy to look like in future and how markets will operate. And the Prime Minister talks in terms of building back for future generations. And I can't see the 
you know, the millions of kids who are out on the street before this crisis hit, easing up on their demands that this government and international governments move to make decarbonisation a reality. So I think politicians feel the pressure and they, they're committed to finding ways out of this crisis that are better for sustainability, better for resilience. And a few positive signs, perhaps. The virtual economy has done pretty well out of this crisis. You and I are having this conversation over Zoom and a lot of people are discovering they can work from home equally efficiently and that's causing less travel and less pollution. So that's one upside. And then we're also seeing the funds who have environmental or social or governance factors in in their investments, they've done reasonably well in the crisis. And I think that's because investors are looking at well-being, they're looking at environmental impact, they're thinking about the sustainability of companies, not just the immediate profit maximisation motive, but they're thinking what kind of companies and what kind of economy do we want in future? So I think there are some glimmers of hope in all of that. And uh, as I've said, we we work on a number of funds in government which are available for companies to apply to. We're giving grants that help to bring down the costs of some of these decarbonising investments. Um, And we hope that companies will still be coming to us this year to get that help. Thanks very much for these insights, Catherine. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of The Climate Briefing. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you are interested in knowing more about industry decarbonisation, you can read a summary of the diplomatic briefing event that both of these speakers attended on the Chatham House website now. It's, It's also copied in the show notes below this episode. And we will be back soon in a few weeks with a new topic. Johanna, what are we going to be talking about? So the next topic will be energy transition in the context of COVID-19 recovery. Well, that's something that I'm ashamed to admit I know nothing about, but I'm looking forward to finding out with the speakers that we'll have lined up. If you want to engage with Chatham House's work on climate policy in the meantime, you can check out the Chatham House website or follow the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme on Twitter at ch underscore environment. I hope that in the intervening few weeks, you stay healthy and well and see you soon.